iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times, Qatar World Cup 2022. Today we react to the opening match of the tournament as Ecuador beat the hosts with ease. What does their performance and the fact the fans left early say about what's to come over the next few weeks? We'll also talk about the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, who had some very strange words to say on the eve of the tournament itself. What is the future of FIFA with him in charge? We'll also talk about the BBC's decision not to show the opening ceremony to you guys there at home. And we'll look ahead to day two of the tournament with England and Wales both in action. This is the game. Hello and welcome to the game World Cup Qatar 22, our first episode. I am Hugh Wilsoncroft joining you from Doha. It is the first day of the competition. We have seen the opening match. Joining me uh, to discuss it, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson back in the UK. How are you doing, guys? Enjoyed the first day, Gregor? It was interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a bizarre opening to the... Uh, to the World Cup, I think we probably expected as much. Um, it was good to get some football underway, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the tournament now. Absolutely, I have just written a piece saying I felt I feel like the person who pumps up her inflatable Santa and turns on the fairy lights in September because it's not <laughs> my house is full of you know covered in completely draped in flags, and I it's, I sort of feel like. Nobody else in the universe is bothered but me, and so I feel a bit, a bit like I've I've got caught the wrong vibe slightly. Yeah, it could well be the case. Could well be the case. Um, I am obviously experiencing something very different here in in Doha in Qatar. Yeah, I mean it is World Cup fever if you like. It's everywhere you look. Obviously, you've got players on the side of skyscrapers. You've got huge fan zones, volunteers everywhere. You know, everyone, of course, presumes that you're here for the, for the World Cup if you're foreign and and everyone is very polite and nice. Um, everything is either brand new or almost finished, essentially. Um, Qatar has basically reorganized its entire nation, new infrastructure, new metro, new roads, whatever it might be, new malls. Everything is fresh, obviously, as we know, built on the back of migrant workers who are working in extremely bad conditions, um, equivalent, of course, as as many human rights activists would say, equivalent of, of modern day slavery. And so, of course, it is a very strange and surreal feeling. Lots of people were hoping that as the football got underway, we wouldn't be talking about some of the politics, some of the outside stories that go along with this World Cup. I think today showed that those stories will continue into the World Cup for some part of it, at least for a first week 
hopefully much longer from my point of view, but I know many of you, many fans out there just want to get on with the football. We're going to talk about Gianni Infantino, some of those stories off the field. We'll talk about the way the BBC approached the opening ceremony. But first off, let's talk about that opening match, which finished Qatar, the hosts, nil, Ecuador two. Here is one of our own who went to the match. Hi, this is Matt Dickinson, and I'm just on my way back from the Albite Stadium, uh, where I've just seen a Qatar pretty comprehensively outplayed by Ecuador in the opening game of this World Cup. Um, and I would say a pretty uh, abject night, really, for the hosts on various levels. Um, obviously, they've lost uh, the game, becoming the first hosts um, to lose their opening game of a World Cup. I would say they now look almost certain given they've got Holland and Senegal to follow to become, like South Africa, hosts who have been knocked out in the group phase. Um, and uh, not a great night for their goalkeeper, um, Al Sheeb, who basically flapped at an early cross, could have been a goal then, pulled down in the Valencia for uh, the penalty and uh, basically was the, the weakest link in a pretty weak old team especially at the back on top of that the fans you know what started out you know as a certainly as a full house everyone got in after some traffic teething displays but by the early in the second half people started doing a runner now that might be because the traffic in doha is notoriously bad it might be because of the queues to get in but it was not a good look by the end of the game we are talking about a third of the seats empty i mean this is meant to be you know the, the match where Qatar, you know, the coming out party, $200 billion spent on this amazing uh, spectacle in their backyard. And um, there was a weird apathy and indifference about it. I mean, obviously being outplayed doesn't help. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, it was a night, to be honest, which is going to ask more questions about the choice of host nation. Qatar have put a lot of resources into becoming a credible team and, and had done, but they certainly suffered serious, serious, severe stage fright tonight on the pitch and off it. As I say, um, very strange to come to a game like this after all the build-up that they've been and to just sort of feel, you know, certainly obviously not if you're Ecuadorian, but for the rest of us in that stadium, it just felt incredibly flat for the last 20 minutes. So yeah, a run one to say the least. So basically, uh, an on-the-whistle report there from Matt Dickinson, who sent us that message, of course, uh, via his phone. But you, you got what he was trying to say there. It was, as he pointed out, an incredibly flat night for the hosts. Their performance wasn't good enough. But actually, of course, it underlined the lack of a footballing culture here in Qatar. The fact that the fans of the home team would walk out 20 minutes before, I know it wasn't all of them, just a portion of them, but 20 minutes before the end of the game at 2-0 down, virtually unheard of and doesn't bode well for the rest of the tournament where I think we are sure to see tens of thousands of locals inside Stadia. And obviously, if they're that apathetic about their own team, I wonder how they will feel watching a drab match of, of course, two other nations. So it wasn't a great day in terms of things on the pitch at all for Qatar. I, I thought it was a poor opening game, but I can understand why it was moved to put the eyes 
of the world on the Qatari match because I'm not sure many of us would have watched it, or at least we would have, but many of the general public would have watched it had it been on a day that we had three other matches taking place, including the Netherlands, Wales, the United States and England all in action. So I think they almost had to put it on its own day, inconvenience the fans to do so. And I don't think they got much reward from it, Alison. No, I mean, it backfired horribly. If you think about it logically, they did the wrong, exactly the wrong thing because I felt, watching it uh, on TV, I wasn't in the stadium, obviously, but I, I felt I could tell from watching it on the telly that the the host nation were nervous. The mistakes made in the first half were made from th- that sort of jitteriness you get from knowing you're the main attraction, that, that the very fact that you were going to sort of be surrounded by other fixtures on an opening day adds a sort of you know sort of comfort blanket around things your part and parcel of of the tournament instead of making it no 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 we want you all on your own headline act we want the world watching you that's something you can get away with if you're one of the top nations in the world at football but not something you can get away it's almost like they felt like by bigging it up it would automatic they would automatically play well that's not how football works just because you <laughs> you maintain that you're important to proceedings doesn't make you good players and they'd been in a bubble for many years preparing for this knowing they'd qualified by right by being the hosts and in that bubble who you know it bubble is one thing and then they've gone from the extreme of a bubble into the eyes of the world watching your first com- properly competitive match. It's it was ridiculous because I thought I felt in the second half they looked like they were more competent defensively. I'm not saying they looked great, but they were certainly more competent and looked like they were capable. Might have been capable if they played it in different circumstances of getting um I don't know getting a goal and straw which would have would have been better than a defeat you know clearly but I just I just felt it was just such an own goal to to hype it up so much because there was definite jitteriness there yeah I think there were although I'm not expecting much more from Qatar uh, even as they warm up through the tournament to be perfectly honest they just aren't good enough to be at the World Cup really and I think that's going to stand out to be perfectly honest Gregor I don't know I kind of watched this that also sort of wondering if we've all been tricked a little bit you know they're ranked 50th in the world there's just been this whole kind of vast sums of money pumped into that aspire academy where the manager felix sanchez has worked since i think 2006 former la masia barcelona coach you know they've all been in a training camp since june there was that there was an expectation that they weren't going to be bad and they were absolutely woeful they were completely out of the depth. And some of that might have been down to nerves, but it's, that's almost irrelevant. This is It's the World Cup. You've only got three games to, to try and get a result, <laughs> or you're out. And as you say, this was their, their best chance of getting a result. And they completely fluffed the lines. They were, the goalkeeper just looked like... He, he, he certainly won't play with the nervous wreck. He was involved in so many incidents at the start, in the, in the first half. You're talking about the, the disallowed VAR goal, which is... I might have been technically correct, but another one of these things that felt like a nonsense. Uh, the penalty, there was a collision with uh, Estrada, the, 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 the striker, the Ecuadorian striker as well. It, he just looked like a nervous wreck. Um, and they, if they looked slightly less nervous in the second half, they didn't really do anything with the ball when they had it. I think they had two chances in the game, a header in the first half and then uh, Muntari's strike in the second half. But they were just kind of moments. And 
ultimately you come come away from I, f- I feel like have we been tricked here <laughs> I don't know because as I say there was an expectation that we're going to be not bad and they were shocking yeah I think we're at the point where the less said about that match the better although although there is a a wider context to it which again it's just another sign that points to this World Cup should not be taking place here in Qatar. But yeah, first game under our belts, Ecuador 2, Qatar 0. I think Ecuador will take the draw, to be perfectly honest, as in the draw in terms of the group rather than the the match result. But I think they will take being in the same group as Qatar after that first game because they register the first three points of the competition. I do want to kind of talk about events, though, at the Albite Stadium. Rather what we didn't see if we were watching at home on the BBC. Um, because there was no opening ceremony shown to the public. Instead, what we got was the BBC doing their first half an hour of the hour build-up based on some of the negatives that go with this World Cup. The, the, the conversation was around uh, human rights, migrant workers. It was around the award of the World Cup to Qatar and how that happened. And of course, it, it spoke about the criminalization of the LGBT community, some of the major stories that had happened. And of course, we got in the studio, Ashley Williams, Alex Scott, Alan Shearer and Gary Lineker talking about the World Cup at length, their decision to go. Everything that pretty much you heard in that half an hour became a trending topic on Twitter during that period of time. All of their names, the BBC itself, the word woke everything you might expect, to be perfectly honest. But Alison, I know that The Times asked you to write about this for Monday's paper, and you you did so. You watched it because Gary Lineker had told The Times that it would be a, a mini panorama. So what did you make of it? Well, it was a mini panorama. It wasn't anything like a proper panorama because there was no extra investigation. It was, But it was a grown-up explanation of why the awarding of the World Cup to Qatar what is so controversial. Uh, crucially, they had two senior BBC, you know, grown-up journalists delivering that information in Ross Atkins and Jeremy Bowen, both names you'll know, I'm sure, who lent a sort of uh, calm, grown-up air to explaining what sports washing is. Uh, Jeremy Bowen said, you know, this is a country that that wants to be associated with the greatest sporting event and to be associated with grand things that fits their their sheer wealth in the country as opposed to things that normally reflect how small they are. They they sort of want to be associated with something enormous and spectacular. If it's a successful World Cup, then that's that's to an extent what will happen. It will go down as the, you know, Qatar 2022 and people talk about how wonderful it was if it, if it ends up being a wonderful World Cup in the football terms. So it was there wasn't quite half an hour of that. I mean, the BBC weren't quite brave enough to dive straight in to it because they know a lot. Well, most people tuning in were doing it because they're excited about it being the World Cup. Most people would be tuning in because they're excited about Ecuador playing Qatar. They're tuning in because it's the first game of the World Cup. So they felt obliged to kick it off with a montage of, you know, the great moments in World Cup history, a bit of Maradona and so on. Lineker looked at the camera and said, stick to football, say FIFA. Well, we will for a couple of minutes at least. Then they played the montage. Then he asked the pundits about whether... Well, yeah, his opening question was odd. He asked them how they felt about it being a winter World Cup. It was as if he wanted to warm them up in terms of levels of controversy. So that was the easy one. 
And then they went into panorama mode, uh, let the grown-ups talk about it. Um, it was quite fun because they did they did show a clip of David Beckham. They didn't say anything about David Beckham, but just a clip of David Beckham championing the tournament as um, you know uh, being sustainable. And they left it hanging, and then they had a a, a, a climate scientist saying um, that it wasn't. So, but so that so that, that was that was reasonably I don't know controversial maybe I mean brave slightly, but 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 the difficulty is when you get to the football pundits being asked about issues of morality, and then that they're inevitably less coherent about it, and slightly defensive. I mean Ashley Williams said, "Well, at least we're talking about it," which is always the get out when. People aren't entirely sure what message they do want to convey. But 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 I will say Lineker promised it would be a mini panorama and it more or less was. But I also got the impression that they've the BBC feel they've done it now. This isn't going to be done again, and certainly the questions aren't going to be asked relentlessly. I I I'm not expecting them to be raised for every game they cover at all. I think I think they feel they can park it now. And maybe they will talk about it if there are issues with, you know, the wearing of armbands and so on, or whether the players are asked not to make any form of symbolic gesture. I think they would refer to that and ask about it, but I don't think we're going to see much more in the way of uh, context from now on. It will be mainly about the football. But, but, but I will say they promised a mini panorama and they gave us one. I thought it was good, to be perfectly honest, that they they did that. As I was explaining to one of my colleagues a few moments ago, a bit like your last point there, Alison, you know, people are uh, sort of outraged that they got half an hour discussion about it, but you can't imagine for the other, you know, 30 games the BBC do during the course of the tournament, there's going to be much, if anything, before the matches. You know, so we basically got a minute per game. So it's not a huge, (laughs) you know, it's not a huge amount. It isn't a huge amount. I just think people expected to turn on and be hit with a dose of World Cup fever, maybe. I, mean, I don't know. They expected big smiles and everyone delighted and, and you know, pictures of fans and the Corniche and the Bay and, you know, boats and fireworks and whatever you expect to see uh, at this World Cup. And they didn't get it and it kind of jarred. But actually, I think editorially, and it was probably an editorial decision that was made. Obviously, it must have been. But I know some are claiming it was a moral decision that the BBC made. I actually think it was an editorial decision to say, what do we do? Do we do a small thing before every game to mention it? Do we keep having our journalists refer to it and our presenters refer to the issues? Or do we just get it out of the way before the first game? And because we do it first up, our first game, as big as we can, no one can come back and say we haven't mentioned it and that we're all hypocrites. So really, I think it was an editorial decision and I, I think it was probably the right one. I'd rather have people have the conversation about the issues, know a little bit more about the issues. If they want to go and find out more brilliant, if they don't and want to stick to the football, okay. But at least the BBC did what it signs up to do, which is actually inform as part of their service. At least they tried to do that. So I'm not, I'm not totally... It was another case of Qatar wanting to get their opening game on its own. It was another case of a backfiring step because that that allowed the BBC to do that. If it had been part and parcel of a full day of fixtures, it would have been a much smaller exercise and you would have tuned in for, you would have got 
more joy when you tuned in if that had been the middle match of the day, for example. So it's it's, it's like they almost invited the world to be make a mini documentary about it. Yeah, you're right. They they said everyone look at us, and it was like, okay, we'll look at you. In that case, with with we'll get the binoculars, the magnifying glass, the telescope out, and we'll look at you in fine detail. So it was. I agree. the whole tournament is them saying, "Look at us," and and this is you can't imagine it's going so far the way that they would have imagined. I mean, it, you say it struck me there, Hugh, as you were saying, you know, it it was jarring. It should jar. It should jar us. I think it also. I mean, the pictures in the stadium jarred me, and then you, you see swathes of of men in in white robes and a smattering of women. Like it, you know, just that in itself is jarring to me as well. Uh, it, it should jar. I think it should jar us. And it's like, as you say, it will. We will move on to talk about football, and this conversation might kind of might become less frequent or quite as pointed, at, you know, throughout the tournament. But if there was a time to do this, it was now. So I think fair play to them. Yeah, I agree. I sort of feel for the people being criticised um, because obviously I'm here in Doha as well, but. I do think, you know, we all made our decision and some chose to stay and some have chosen to come. And But I do think if you, I mean, I know we've spoken about it before, but the washing element of sports washing, if you dive in deep and say, there's nothing going on, it's all brilliant. I, I don't know what you're talking about when people refer to the human rights abuses or the criminalization of, of gay people here, then you you're, you're really are choosing to be on the side, if you like, of, of Qatar, which I don't think I could do. But I do think it was sort of a responsibility, I guess, of mine to come here and at least chronicle the events that happen, which, by the way, when I, when people say like, oh, we're going to go and tell you everything that happens in Qatar, in my mind, I thought, oh, there's going to be loads of loads of this stuff. There's going to be protests. There's going to be players speaking out. And we need people who are going to want to speak about those things and push those those aspects of what happens at the World Cup as well. And I thought I might be one of those people. Fingers crossed. I can do a half-decent job while I'm here anyway. Um, but yeah, feel free to tweet me and call me a hypocrite. Now, I think we need to talk about Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president, next. because I, I think these two topics go hand in hand. It was a disgraceful speech. The opening press conference from the FIFA president ahead of the, the World Cup. We haven't spoken since. Do you think we need to cover this topic I mean, it was ridiculous. It made pretty much no sense. I mean, I guess he was trying to show empathy with marginalized groups. He told reporters here in Qatar, today I feel gay. Today I feel African. Today I feel like a migrant worker. Today I feel Arab. I feel disabled. I feel like a vagrant, he said. It was just very strange. He said it took him back to his personal story, his his parents um, being Italian migrant workers in Switzerland that had been, he said he'd been bullied for his accent, for having red hair and freckles as a child, and said he almost understood discrimination because of those parts, which obviously to people who are in any of those marginalized groups that I mentioned before, you know, with all due respect to people with red hair, made it sound absolutely ridiculous. And yeah, I think he what he actually did was insert himself between the Qatari, I say government if you like, the rulers of Qatar and the public criticism. He injected himself in the middle to provide a shield for Qatar. 
which was, I think, one of the worst moments we've seen. And we've seen a lot of bad moments in the recent history of FIFA and world football for that matter. But what we did was we saw the FIFA president basically choose to be a part of the washing in sports washing, as if all of the stuff that had gone before the award of the World Cup, the changing of all of the the, the broken promises that I mentioned earlier, the changing of the time, just everything that has gone along with this World Cup, you know, believing and saying that football is going to unite, which he did say in the stadium before the, the opening game, to then say in his press conference before, beforehand as well you know if you look back at the last 3,000 years basically Europe hasn't got a leg to stand on you shouldn't criticize Qatar I thought was disgraceful firstly if you take the last 3,000 years into account you can't host the World Cup anywhere no country is perfect but what he did was he basically said you know if there's one bad person in in your country you're the same as the country that has 10,000 or 10 million bad people or bad events happening like he just equated anything bad with everything bad morally it was just devoid of of any kind of class thought it was disgraceful i mean start to finish it was utterly disgraceful and the idea that he will stand uh, unchallenged for another term as fifa president just leaves such a bad taste in the mouth because it proved that the money it coll- it corrupts i mean it absolutely corrupts in terms of this speech morally corrupts and I, yeah, I was absolutely disgusted by it, to be perfectly honest. And I thought it was worse than anything I'd heard come out of the mouth of Seth Blatter, which is saying something. Alison Rudd, what did you think of it? Oh, I thought it was beautiful. No, of course not. I mean, you've covered, <laughs> you've covered everything there, haven't you? Uh, what can I add to what you said? I think, actually... Tell, tell my... me how you felt. Tell me how you felt when you heard it. Uh, incredulous. Thought it was a spoof to start with because it's ludicrous, then you have to think, why did he say it? I actually think if he was listening, who knows, he might be, if he was listening to you, Hugh, he actually might think positively about what you're saying, because he framed it in terms of um, hypocrisy and morality and what a rich country can do to help poor people and taken away the focus from the fact that the bidding process was corrupt in the first place that and as head of fifa that's what really bothers him is that you know that that fifa are discredited because of how how qatar won the bid he doesn't really care too much about what the country is like subsequently so if we're talking about ethics morals and the way the west views the middle east that it makes him feel like he's on some sort of stable ground in terms of logic and conversation and creating just creating dialogue about those things because you could you could you could i mean he didn't do it right but you could actually have a we could have a sensible debate about hypocrisy in all this because it's not that long ago that gay men were being arrested in this country we you know pe- countries need to make progress it's no, no one comes from a pure society. There are issues and you have to be careful about slamming one nation for not being what you want them to be without being at least cognizant of what your own culture does. But th- these are all discussions that would that, 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 that would cheer him up because we're not talking about the fundamental corruption of FIFA. There's also a delusion that the World Cup coming into town is going to do anything to change that. That's what is also... You know, <laughs> 
We should also add. I don't know if I, I don't know if I missed you saying this. That this that Qatar is now his home. I mean that it it felt like something had been scripted for him. It was astonishing. What all I can add is it made me feel really quite depressed actually. Like you know, I'm sure a lot of us have followed what's gone on at FIFA and maybe watched the the kind of recent Netflix documentary that chronicles it so well. And that was really depressing. But you just felt that possibly we were, despite this all happened under Set Blatter, you kind of hoped that we might be uh, onto something a little bit better now. But it doesn't feel that way. It feels like we're still. It feels like we, we FIFA are FIFA's main aim is to divide. Europe and the rest of the world, and Seth Blatter did that to keep to, to stay in power. You know, he backed, he 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 basically gave lots of money to the country, <laughs> to to smaller countries, kind of that we wouldn't, they aren't the kind of traditional European powerhouses for votes, essentially, um, allegedly, I should probably say, and it just feels like we're continuing in the in in the vein that he started. For what reason? I don't. I don't really know. If if it's not for money, I don't know what it's for. Empire building. Pretty much, yeah. That's what you got from that that program as well. That FIFA is an. They feel FIFA is an empire. FIFA FIFA has become an empire. It's like treated as if it it on it should be on the same stage as world leaders and nations and and Gian, Gianni and Fatino is. We saw him stand standing getting a medal from Vladimir Putin after the last World Cup. And now, and now he's now he's sitting between the the ruler of Saudi Arabia and the ruler of Qatar, uh, watching the opening of the World Cup. He is one of, he is the head of an empire. And it's, exactly, it's and that disgusting. when he when he took when he took the microphone at the end of the opening ceremony, which apparently wasn't on the running order of what would happen, it to me that was almost scarier than his press conference because he did so as if he actually felt he was. Not not just the head of an empire, but the ruler of the world. You know, he was God, and only I can. I have to have the last word. I welcome the world. All eyes are on me. This is my party. You know, it was he was above everybody, or you know, I mean, he believed to be him above everybody, which was terribly Orwellian and scary. Okay, time for me to very quickly um, not make this a really one-sided podcast where we all just agree about everything. I have to put forward the, the other side of the argument that firstly, what the BBC did was woke culture, uh, censorship, disrespectful to Qatar to not show, uh, and their people, to be honest, to not show the opening ceremony, because of course, not everyone in Qatar is responsible for all of the issues that they have. And as I can attest to firsthand, the public here are, are very lovely and respectful. Um, and obviously, there is still the argument that some would say that Infantino maybe had a point when he spoke about European nations basically needing to take a look at themselves and have some introspection, especially some of the journalists who maybe weren't as vocal in Russia as they are being now. So can any of you, Alison, I'll start with you. Can you see any of those points of views being valid? Well, I, I did hint at that. There, if, he'd, if he'd conducted the press conference with more intelligence and more emotional intelligence, you could possibly have had a dialogue. Um, it comes back to, in this, I, I mean, in some respects, it's, e it's easy for us to say what we're saying now. And it's easy for the BBC to have done their mini panorama now, 
because it's it's a fait accompli. So to argue at the time, to argue when things aren't set in stone, to argue and make protests when you're up against the big man, so to speak, that is much harder. It's it's a strange thing, really. It's only when you can't change anything that it seems almost okay and relaxed to have a go at it because you you know you're you know you know you've lost in a way. I mean, it's happening, and there'll be some great games of football, and it will be covered, and we we will all talk about the football, and there will be podcasts when we don't really mention much about human rights abuses. So, and we know, we know deep down that that's what's going to happen. So we, we, those of us who scoff at Infantino, I mean, he has a point that we're being slightly hypocritical because were, were we when it mattered? Have we done enough? Have we done enough to expose the reasons why they won the bid and what happened as they were building the stadiums? So everyone's guilty of flaws and of not doing enough. And I think it's very hard not to live a life that has some hypocrisy in it. So it's almost a clever jibe at the journalists in the room because they will have all, they're all juggling some degree of morality on it. And some of them might have gone away thinking, well, that was a ludicrous, completely ludicrous and peculiar and deluded speech. But there was, you know, 1% of it might have hit home in terms of, I'm not, you know, I'm not without some degree of lack of logic or insight myself. So it wasn't, I mean, and there will be people who heard that and thought, oh, yeah, 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 good point. Good point, Gio. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. And, you know, as long as some it hits home for some people, he doesn't need to, he doesn't need to impress you or me or, or Gregor or those of us who are, you know, really horrified by what's happened in Qatar and how the bid was won. He doesn't need to impress us. He just needs to impress the people who maintain his empire, which is, as, as Gregor points out, non-Europe. Gregor, are we too woke on this podcast? <laughs> I do hope not. You. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think we've, I really think we've, we've covered it. The look, the one common denominator in all of this, we can speak about Qatar. The one common denominator is FIFA. South Africa bought the World Cup. Russia bought the World Cup, and now they've taken it to Qatar. And it's this Qatar, and you just hope this isn't then a deer. But when you hear him talking about North Korea uh, in serious tones, then like you, you, you can't be certain of that. So let's talk about some football, shall we? You, you know what? That's a great suggestion. <laughs> Up next on the podcast, we'll talk about day two of the World Cup with England and Wales both in action. In the meantime, remember, we're going to have daily podcasts for you virtually throughout the entire length of the tournament. So make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you hit the notification button as well. Check out more of our great journalism uh, on the Times app as well. So download that where you can. We'll be back in a sec. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, let's talk football, as Gregor Robertson just begged us to. We might as well. Uh, no Scotland at the World Cup, sorry, Gregor. But we can talk about England and Wales. We've got two home nations uh, to discuss. England taking on Iran on day two. That's their first game. Remember, they are in a group uh, with Wales and the United States. They meet later on in the evening in Group B. We'll also see Senegal against Netherlands completing the first uh, set of fixtures in Group A on Monday the 21st. That is, of course, probably the day that you're listening to this. Um Let's talk about England first, simply because the team has basically been leaked to the media, if it is correct, and this is not the Times reporting it, but seeing what we're seeing on social media and a few uh, outlooks, it looks like Harry Maguire is going to start. Looks like Raheem Sterling is also going to start. Jude Bellingham in midfield over Calvin Phillips. Uh, Phil Foden will be on the bench, as will Trent Alexander-Arnold, as it looks like Trippier and Shaw will be the fullbacks. Bakayu Saka will also start, and as you'd expect, Harry Kane up front. So uh, it's a 4-3-3, I guess, which is, I guess, going to be the biggest piece of news for fans. Uh, And the second biggest piece will be, I guess, Foden on the bench. Gregor, do you agree with that? And how do you think England will do in the game if that is the starting lineup? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with you. The main surprise is there is probably Foden being left out. Although we we did say in our... In our preview, we all picked our teams that, and no one picked Raheem Sterling, that we all believed that Raheem Sterling would play. And I think Saka has done enough in an England jersey to become one of Southgate's favourites, really. So that's, I think the shape actually is the biggest surprise for me. You know, we, we also said that when England feel they can really take the game to the opposition, as they did uh, in, in the Euros in some games, that he'd be willing to play in the shape. But I, I, I believe, to, uh, you know, I, I'm surprised that he's doing it in the opening game. But it's, uh, it's certainly an attacking team. Absolutely. He's got, like, this is the this is the argument that people have had <laughs> for much of Southgate's tenure about, you know, basically getting an extra attacker on the pitch and uh, throwing off the shackles. And if he's going to do it in any game in, in, in the group, it probably, he probably is best doing it in this one. So some people will be su- surprised about Harry Maguire. Again, I'm not that surprised because... I think he believes that Harry Maguire is part of his best starting eleven. We spoke about how much pressure he'll be under, and I think if he can get off to a good start, then and build some momentum in the tournament, of you know, a fit, healthy, in body and mind, Harry Maguire will be a good thing for England. So, yeah, I think it's a positive team, absolutely. Well, I'm glad he's going for at the back, although it makes no sense really if you think about it, because he was so wedded to playing three at the back. And they've had well, so they little do this in the Euros. In the but games he has so, he yeah, but, but 
his build up to the World Cup has been that he's wedded to three at the back. And that made, I mean, maybe he's just being really clever with the mind games and he wasn't worried about what we'd say. He's worried about what the opposition would think. But it just, it just, it just felt like most people were saying, well, you know, it's a bit negative to play three at the back against a country like Iran, but, you know, he is wedded to it. And now he's doing the sensible thing, which is, as you say, Gregor, playing the more attacking formation against uh, a team they ought to, they ought to beat. And that's logical. But you just wonder what the players are thinking because they would have probably been explained. I've heard interviews with players saying, I think we're going to be from now on playing three at the back against everybody. So well, it just seems slightly peculiar, really, that he, he allowed that dialogue to carry on. Don't know why you do that. Why can't? I mean, you know, if there's been a trend change over the last few years in football, it is, it is that teams are just flexible within games, let alone in between games, you know, they're all capable of adapting, but to be told that they wouldn't need to just seemed a bit peculiar, a bit old-fashioned, a bit old-fashioned, if you like. That's a good, very good point, though, actually. I mean, the, the, many of the best teams now, the formation you begin with is almost irrelevant. Um, and I'm not saying that England are kind of going to be good enough to transition in between, you know, having very flexible fullbacks in, in this World Cup, things like that unless they have certain players on the pitch. But it's true. You could you could say that um, England, can, England can be flexible within the game itself with with this team, and many teams actually they put out. So David Moyes wrote a good, a good column in, uh, for the Times actually saying that. That's something that he thinks that we should watch out for in the in the tournament. And it's certainly a very common been a common theme in the Premier League so far this season, so that will be interesting to see whether you know a, a one one fullback might be given a little bit more license to 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 play higher up the pitch. So we'll see. It could it could morph into three at the back, <laughs> and then he really has fooled us all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what what is slightly disappointing, I think, is that, or maybe it isn't. Uh, we're all we're all second guessing Southgate, but I'd have thought Trent Alexander Arnold might start the game on the basis he probably wouldn't start him later in the tournament and it might have been a good way to work out how he could integrate but it, I, I you know I, I just feel there for some reasons there are so many question marks about the uh, Liverpool fullback that it, I, 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 I almost don't know why he's there in the squad it just seems it must be quite odd for to be training with someone who has such is so good at passing, so accurate and so intuitive, so elegant, so you know, so clearly one of the best in the world at doing what he does, and to know that he's not even going to be given a chance to show that he can be part of this team. I don't know. I just, I just, to me, it's counterintuitive. Him, it's almost worse him being there and not being used, really. Okay. I want to look ahead to Wales next, I think. I've been doing a lot of research for this game. I'll be following Wales throughout the tournament as I did at the Euros last summer. I think it's a must win for Wales, personally. They won't have Joe Allen, huge miss. He's sort of the player in the Wales midfield that gets his foot on the ball, calms things down when they're under pressure and they've got their backs against the walls. Very calm head, very experienced player to be missing in the central midfield area, especially when most of his replacements are players from 
basically League One, um, Portsmouth and MK Dons in Matt Smith and and uh, Joe Morrell. So it's a huge miss for Wales, especially as it's it's essentially this matchup for me. Experience, the experience that Wales have garnered over the last few tournaments against energy. And that being the youthful tenacity, if you like, of this United States squad, which is the second youngest at the tournament. They've got quality there as well. Plenty of players playing in in top leagues, if you like, just very inexperienced at, at major tournaments. Um, only DeAndre Yedlin has been to a World Cup before in their team. Obviously, none of the Welsh internationals have been to a to a World Cup before, but... You know, it's not what you would expect from a United States team, of course, having not qualified for the last tournament. I think Wales have more than enough to win this game. I think if they win it with Iran coming in their second game, it sets them up to qualify. Rest all the big names against England. Put your feet up, lose 5-0, go through top. I still think that could happen, but they just need to win this game. And I think the major part of it will be control. The United States have the Leeds midfielder Tyler Adams as their captain. He's also in central midfield with Weston McKenney of, of Juventus. Eunice Musa of Valencia, who's just a teenager, but but showing plenty of promise playing in La Liga. And I think that midfield area will, will decide the game. If they can bypass it, maybe go straight into Kiefer Moore, play off him with Dan James, Gareth Bale, um, Brennan Johnson off the bench they can certainly win this game, particularly if they get good delivery into the box from Connor Roberts and Nico Williams because Kiefer Moore should give the American goalkeeper and centre-backs a torrid time if he's played how he played in the last few games. So I will predict Wales win this game, which will, of course, be a hugely emotional moment for them. Their first match in the World Cup for 64 years. I think you've covered it. I think that one thing you've got to say is the US, US have got some real talent, absolutely. And as you say, they're young and they've got lots of energy and pace and some big names, some creative players, but actually they don't have a goal scorer. Um, I think they're likely to play uh, Jesus Ferreira, the FC Dallas striker up front. He's 21, but he's not prolific. They failed to score in six of the last seven games against countries that have qualified for the World Cup, including Saudi Arabia and Japan most recently. I, I see more goals in Wales' team. And the... the, the the kind of problem area you mentioned, midfield, I, I've been thinking about this earlier, and I I was actually, I know you were, were talking about League One players as a backup, but I thought Joe Morel played well in the Euros and it's a round, you know, a round peg and a round hole. I think the other option is putting Ampadu into midfield. That's what's likely to happen, I think. Ampadu I, will I think start right. in midfield. I think you're right, yeah. But again, that probably comes back to what the formation is. If he's playing three at the back, Ampadu may be better in the back three and because otherwise you're probably bringing in Mepham. Like, I, I don't know. I, I liked, I thought Joe Morel was good. He, he's got energy and he puts his foot in and I think that'll be important and I think if Wales when if Wales get the ball forward quickly they have pace and they have people who can finish which I, I don't think the US team do so I agree I, I I hope but I also believe Wales will win this typical EFL player puts his foot in <laughs> there you go that's what we want to see gets about he, does, the he loves it he said it himself he's he, you know I think he's, he's had a fairly up and down career and he's he said that he it kind of struck him that he had to go out and be nastier than anyone else on the pitch. He did that against Italy as well. He kind of he didn't look out of place. So uh, that would be my move. But look, in Rob Page, we trust. Yeah, absolutely. Alison, keen to see Gareth Bale do well. Is that the first time you've mentioned his name in the discussion? <laughs> because that is remarkable if that's the case. Because it does depend enormously on what he can conjure. Because he... Wales could have pretty pedestrian 
a competent but pedestrian match and then a moment of genius from him can be what wins it, I think. And the US don't have someone like that, of that calibre, that status. And I know he's not what he used to be, but I do really feel he's been, of all the players, probably of all the players at the World Cup, and there are a few a bit similar, but of all of them, he's the one that's made sure he's sort of tapering his almost his career to this moment. So everything he's done has been to make sure he's fit for this World Cup. And when you do that, you make sure you do something wonderful, don't you? We can only hope so. Could be a magic moment for uh, Gareth Bale. Of course, it will be leading his country out at the World Cup. But um, yeah, I think he's still got a little something up his sleeve and his name will be on our the tip of our tongues, I think, throughout the next 10 days in this group stage to see if he can carry Wales into the knockout stages of a World Cup. We're all set. For day two, Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson, thank you very much. I've made it this far. I think the sirens you may have heard a few minutes ago, they weren't for me. They were probably Gregor in North London, to be perfectly honest. So few. What we said about Gianni Infantino clearly hasn't yet uh, got to him anyway. Uh, listen, um, make sure you're with us each and every night. Hopefully I will be with you and not not behind bars um, after what we've said so far on this podcast. But there you go. Uh, make sure you hit notification button. Make sure you download the Times app for more of our award-winning, award-winning journalism. Uh, you can also get it, of course, at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.